The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santopietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. Welcome, everybody, to today's podcast. Really excited to be here with uh, Lakshman, who is an ICU doctor. But we're really, really excited and thankful to have you here. You know, we're having more doctors coming in talking with us, which is so critical. And so thank you for joining. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So why don't we start, where were you? You were just finishing up your fellowship, right? When the, so you were actually finishing fellowship when the uh, COVID pandemic hit. What was that like? You know, I was, in, I was in the last months of my pulmonary and critical care fellowship at Boston University, Boston Medical Center. And it was unbelievable because in the months before that, I was just starting to kind of look for a job and figure out what I was going to do next. I had a lot of different ideas. And and so so this 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 happened and i mean it's funny when i think about it because it was so ridiculous how many things just happened all at once and you know i was one of those people in in february who was saying this is just another flu and i was so wrong i mean many of my colleagues too and it, that how wrong we were hit us in the face really hard in march wow so by far, most of the people, maybe all the people other than you, you know, that we've talked with were in their kind of jobs, their careers when this hit. So here you are, you're finishing training, you're actually looking for a job. You know, this thing uh, comes along. And like you said, and, and your, your training is ICU, pulmonary care, pulmonary medicine. So did it affect your where you decided to go or choosing a job at all? Or did it not? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, I've always enjoyed being in the ICU, I also enjoy taking care of patients in the outpatient setting and, and everything in between. But I, I have to say, I can't explain what that experience was like for me, where, first of all, it was, it was incredible training. Um, mm-hmm. It's certainly at a, at a cost, but the training was unbelievable. And that kind of volume and that kind of acuity, you know, you learned a lot. But also, it made me both 
love the ICU so much more and recognize how much I love it again. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, really feel this strange um, sense of just dread with the ICU and and feeling like both I, I wanted to embrace it and I wanted to run away at the same time because it was terrible. So you're coming in and you're finishing up, you decide I'm going to work in the ICU, you know, and initially, like you said, you got all this new knowledge or, you know, been working on it for years, of course, but you're thinking like a lot of people were who were pulmonologists at the time, this is just another flu. When did that start to change? I remember the first, you know, one of the first days where we had started to convert the ICU and, and really the whole hospital in a way as we sort of prepared for for this wave of patients in March. And it was bizarre because they weren't there yet. Mm-hmm. And and we had, and I had already never seen the ICU what it was like then. And this was this was such a strange time. I mean, this is before all the things we take for granted now, like wearing masks. We weren't doing it then, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, there was a lot of mixed messaging even within the hospital about right. whether we should be wearing masks or not. And Right. It's just going to make people scared and all of this. It's unbelievable to think about all that now in retrospect. Yeah. Um, what was that like for you as a pulmonologist, as an ICU person, right? Like, what was that like? What were you thinking about the masks? Do you remember at one point thinking, yeah, this mask thing is overblown? And then do you remember it switching or what was it like? Yeah. I, you know, I remember feeling like suddenly there just weren't N95s. It used to be for my whole training, you know, for seven years in these hospitals. I could just open the cabinet next to the patient room and see the box of N95s. And I, I wore them not irregularly because mm-hmm. we would wear them when we were worried about tuberculosis. You know, that's a pulmonary disease that we saw not infrequently. And so yeah. this wasn't that new to me to be wearing an N95. And suddenly it was hard to find them and we were re-wearing them. It happened all at once. It happened instantly. Okay. Where it went from all of this stuff is here and it's a normal world to suddenly I'm hoarding and like not hoarding. I only had one mask at that right. time, but I was really, you know, I was using it. That's interesting to hear from somebody who's an expert, right? That it was all of a sudden like that. Because I think that's what it felt like to most people, you know, most of the public. Cause, and I think you remember, you know, on the, the front side of that pivot, right? Like before it really changed, I think you were even saying when we talked that, um, you know, you and your friends and people that you were training with were almost looking at this like, geez, this is the crisis that's built for us, right? Like this is our yeah. specialty. Is that right? This was like an existential moment for me and for my colleagues, because we felt like this, and I mean, in retrospect, it seems ridiculous, but we felt like this entire burden of this pandemic Mm -hmm. was going to rest on our shoulders. And it was up to us to figure it out, to figure out the right things to do for these patients, to figure out the right protocols and efficiencies and everything from the clinical stuff to the organization. It was all on us. And that is not at all true. I mean, especially in the ICU, everything is such a team sport, but I don't know what happened to me at that time. And I think to many of my colleagues, but I was in this really deep spiral of just feeling this intense pressure to, to be, to be the one that knew what needed to be done, to know what was happening, to figure it out. I don't think this was just me. I I know it was a lot of my colleagues. We really felt this pressure. Like we had to figure this out. We had to know what to do, what was safe, what wasn't safe, what are the right treatments, what are wrong treatments. That was a big part of it too. And honestly, even though the ICU is is such a team endeavor, somehow I forgot all of that. And I felt this 
entire burden on me, which was not true, not yeah. realistic at all. I'm not the expert to manage all of this. Yeah. Um, but that drove me and many yeah. of my colleagues to try to swallow all of the data. You know, really forget drinking from a fire hose. This was 10 times that, right? Every, yeah. every pre-print, every podcast, every back and forth between experts across the world. We're trying to absorb all of it. Wow. And it was, you know, it was too much. Yeah. I mean, I can, you know, as you're saying this, I'm thinking if I were just getting out of training and psychiatry, you know, you can see on the horizon, this psychiatric crisis coming yeah. right across the globe. You know, that first thought would be, yeah, this is, let's do this guys. Let's, you know, let's get yeah. together. Let's figure this thing out. We can figure it out. And then, but the way you're describing it, almost, it sounds like you're kind of going down a rabbit hole, you know, and at some point, was there a moment where it shifted from feeling kind of excited and empowered to, I don't know if we can figure this thing out? Oh, yeah. And you remember back then, there was so much talk about, are we going to run out of ventilators, right? right. And there's so much that people didn't know about ventilators. A big part of what I was trying to do was just trying to help everyone understand what is a ventilator. No one really knew that, right? And then we're managing really sick patients who are taking everything we've got from the ventilator, right? Everything we've got from all that care. And there was certainly, a, I mean, I remember when the first realization was I'm putting so much effort into learning everything. Right. We're putting so much effort into caring for all these people. And so many of them are dying anyway, yeah. and not necessarily quickly. It was a lot of prolonged agony and it was hard to, you know, then we had to remind ourselves that there were people that got through because so many didn't. And yeah. to remember that and to kind of push forward and say, this is, this is worth it because we don't know right now who we can pull through this. I'm really interested in this, in your perspective as a learner, right? So you're coming into mm. this thing because you're all geared up, learn, 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 and soaking everything up. And oh, then yeah. this thing hits, right? So, and, I, and you said something, and I can't remember, I think you were talking about this divide between the academics and the cowboys. What, oh, what did you yeah, mean by wow. That? You know, one of the one of the really unbelievable things that kind of happened was that in our sort of little world of critical care medicine, we saw giants in in the field who had written textbooks on this arguing with each other on social media. And really it got wow. very personal and it led to this big rift where on the one hand you have um I'm going to maybe simplify it a little bit but on the one hand, you have people who are really trying to say, we should treat this like, like the diseases we know. We should treat mm -hmm. this with the evidence that we have for, for severe lung disease, for ARDS, right? Yeah. Um, we should use those same therapies and we should acknowledge that um, there's going to be a lot of, of death, right? Because it's a severe disease. And then you had another side of the sort of pendulum, which was saying, this is different. COVID is different, sort of yeah. COVID exceptionalism. And we should try all these different therapies because we're seeing all these different things. And I, don't, I think the truth is probably somewhere in between there because this is more ARDS than we had ever seen before. Yeah. So maybe there's something to be said that everything we knew before wasn't totally accurate. But the vitriol and the conflict that was happening and people were just doing all kinds of different things, wow. you know, and even now, more than a year later, there is still so much argument and disagreement about some of these sort of fringe therapies, right? Wow. To me, this is inside baseball, right? Because we're talking mm -hmm. to somebody that's an expert in the field that, uh, that this pandemic falls into. So what was that like as a learner? Because you're, again, you're coming out, I mean, you've been in training yeah. for many, many years, but still, was there disillusion? I mean, because these are the 
you know, oh, like you yeah. said, the giants and the, these are the, these are mm-hmm. the people you're like, this is how I learn what I'm supposed to learn. These are the facts. Yeah. And now the people are disagreeing about that. What was that like? It was really challenging because you, you kind of found yourself in a position where we're going to do, I'm really proud of, of my institution and how our, my faculty mm-hmm. kind of handled all of that and the, the decisions that largely that we kind of made. Mm-hmm. But there's a ton of criticism for the way we did things from people who said we should have been using all these other drugs. And from our person, you know, our practice as every hospitals changed almost day to day, the protocols, the, the different medicines we would or would not use when we use them. Um, in the starting, it was really all kinds of different things were being tried. And depending who was kind of taking care of the patient, you'd see wide variation, even within one institution, much less across the board. And as a learner, Certainly it was hard. I think that the big lesson that I took away and that I think my colleagues were exceptional at kind of teaching mm-hmm. was really the balance of, of the evidence we know with the patient in front of us and keeping that in a tight balance without really going overboard with anything. But how, I mean, what comes across also is just how surreal. I mean, you know, you're, you're dealing with a once in a lifetime pandemic yeah. that has, has shaken us and moved us forward. And but it also reminds me, Lakshman, as you're talking about how I was interested when you were talking about the ICU, you said people think of it as chaotic, but it's really not. You know, if you, you know, people that mm-hmm. love love it and work there, you, you said there actually aren't surprises there. And this was really counter to that. So talk a little bit about that. So many people who aren't in medicine think of the ICU as the emergency department. And they, they think I'm an ER doctor because I'm an ICU doctor. Those are, I mean, I have a great deal of respect for emergency room clinicians, but it's very different. It's totally different. And the reason it's different is that critical care is, is meticulous. It's slow. It's careful. You try to avoid any urgent, emergent things. You're trying to manage the most minute details of physiology to help someone, to support someone through critical illness so that they can get better. Yes, we do procedures and we do all these things. And yes, there are emergencies and there's codes and all that. But that that is not the reason that we are in an ICU. We're in an ICU to try to avoid all that, to prevent those things from happening, to be kind of uh, minimally invasive and maximally attentive, let's say, and uh, to do whatever we have to do to, to support physiology, to get people through it. And when we can't, of course, to you know be there to support patients and families at the end. So this virus, this pandemic really turned that upside down. Oh, yeah, it was my memories of that time are and it's starting to come back to normal. Even now, it's only starting to come back. But it was it corrupted the intensive care unit. When I think about what the ICU was like before this in 2019, Mm -hmm. the ICU is a vibrant place. It's you see huge teams walking through there, all kinds of truly multidisciplinary care happening and families families filling rooms and hallways and and waiting rooms and all of life is just happening there, right? Mm -hmm. People are sick, people are recovering, people are dying, people are getting terrible diagnoses, people are getting good news. It's, you know, all of that. And and of Mm -hmm. course, it's the ICU. So Mm -hmm. there's death, there's there's a lot of that. It's, It's a dark place in many ways. But on the other hand, it is a place that is truly, I always think of it just as so full of life, and so full of caring. Uh, You know, we really care intensively. I mean, we are, when a patient dies unexpectedly, you see it on everyone's faces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it affects everyone. We're all in this kind of together with, with our patients and families. And that was all gone, all gone with COVID, all and turned upside down. That word corrupted is such a powerful word because it, 
conjures the image of the virus, not just as a physical virus, you know, physically attacking the body, but as a virus, almost like a computer virus mm -hmm. that gets into a system and disrupts the, the system and corrupts the system. And what a powerful sort of metaphor. You said it, it is um, coming back online. It is, you but know? you know what? The things that, that it did to corrupt it, just like you're saying, are you know, families were just totally banned mm -hmm. from the ICU, from the hospital. Yeah. So what does that mean? Suddenly it's quiet, it's empty. All of the family meeting rooms are turned into extra work rooms to support the extra surge teams, right? right. And just much more than that, you know, what is the ICU? The ICU is about relationships. Yeah. Why do I love the ICU? Because of the relationships I have with my colleagues, you know, with respiratory therapists, with the nurses, with all the yeah. other doctors, with everyone. Yeah. And what COVID did in the starting was it inverted those relationships. And where there used to be support, there was fear. I was scared of getting someone else sick. I was scared right. of getting sick from right. them. Right. I was aggressively keeping distance from people right. as much as I could. Right. Right? right. I was, you know, now hidden behind an N95 and, and goggles and all this stuff the whole time and as little time as I could around right. other people. You know, it was just, just terrible upside down and you talk about this sort of basically the loss of a sense of control and i think i remember you saying when we talked that something i think you maybe even said the medicine wasn't fun yeah the medicine was hard learned a ton it wasn't fun in the same way i mean part a big part of it was that you couldn't in the starting you couldn't spend time with with patients the way we used to right it's a very hands-on field you know we're doing we're examining the body head to toe we're doing we're in the room all the time we stopped doing our own procedures because it was too inefficient the surgeons would come in and have their you know donning and dolphin protocols and do all the procedures we would you know manage the ventilators and we it was just totally different totally sterile right mm -hmm. the medicine wasn't fun and the same things over and over and over again so here you are with all this you know it's topsy-turvy you know your this sense of loss of control it's not fun what was it like for you you know did you hit a wall and how did what was that like yeah that I remember that day so clearly. I remember, you know, again, it's the combination of the clinical time, but really just the the overwhelming amount of time outside of the hospital mm -hmm. of trying to be an expert, right? Mm -hmm. And trying to be an expert in a thing that is so big that no one person can be an expert on it and failing, constantly failing at that. That was the big thing about COVID at that time was I felt like I was failing my patients because they were so sick and not getting better. I felt like I was failing my colleagues. I felt like I was failing my family. I felt like I wasn't, I was failing, you know, my identity as a pulmonary critical care doctor by not mastering everything. Yeah. And it hit this kind of peak. I remember one day when I went out for a run with my then toddler in a, in a you know, one-year-old in the stroller yeah. and um, he was asleep and I was running laps around the, re the reservoir here. And yeah. I meant to just go for a short run. I didn't stop running. I just, I didn't even know there were tears streaming down my face. I didn't know why. I was wow. a mess. I just wow. didn't, you know, I wasn't processing emotions, right? Yeah. How far did you run? Do you know? It was a little over a half marathon. It was like 13 <laughs> something. Yeah, it was wow. almost 14 miles. And then oh my I, and, wow. I, and then my wife was kind of, you know, my wife was dealing with a lot. She was taking care of three kids at home and yeah. trying to manage everything else while I was I was out doing this. And, and uh, I remember when she kind of really started to say, mm -hmm. it's too much. Yeah. You're pushing yourself too far and it's it's bad for everyone. This moment of hitting the wall or realizing that you're hitting the wall has been so important, you know, to hear in people's stories because so many people don't realize that they're hitting the wall, right? Mm. So, I, I just want to kind of 
double click on in a minute, you know, so even the running, right? So, you know, you're, you say, I remember the moment I was running, my kid was in the thing. I, I kept running. I ran like a half marathon. There's, I noticed tears coming. Was that the moment of realist? Do you remember that was the <laughs> in moment? retrospect? It was the moment, even, even then after it, I mm -hmm. still, I mean, the things that I do to sort of ward off burnout or be well, I was doing those things on a crazy level, running a ton, baking bread, doing all this stuff. Right. And, and it wasn't enough. And it, it only, it took me a lot longer to realize what it meant that I hit the wall okay. and that actually pulling back, wasn't going to be enough. Pulling okay, back from reading the stuff nonstop isn't enough. That's really helpful. So, so, I mean, if we were there with you when you were running, clearly something was up, but even then you didn't have the full realization in your mind yet. And it yeah. took a little while. And then you said something about your wife. I wanted, that's the second one I wanted to sort of double click on because I think our, there's been a number of people that have said somebody had to say something to me, you know? Mm -hmm. So what did, what is it that she said? What did she notice? What she noticed was that she, she pulled me back from the edge of just mm -hmm. this downward spiral where I was trying to be too many things, trying to be too much, trying to read all this and all that. When she kind of grabbed me and pulled me back, that was the starting of me recovering, I think. Because at that time, I couldn't stop thinking about COVID. I was dreaming and even my normal dreams had COVID in it. Wow. The nightmares were such thinly veiled metaphors. I'm a superhero where I, my superpowers aren't working, wow. right? Like I felt wow. so impotent. I felt mm -hmm. impotent and yep. I felt powerless. And she pulled me back from that. And when, when she gave me the space I needed from myself, right? Yeah. And yeah. she brought me back to my family, to my kids, and it helped a ton. And it actually opened me up for the first thing that really helped me, which was diving into, into this creative endeavor. Yeah, tell us about this. It, it's so interesting. So, I mean, this was just something that I almost felt compelled to do it because mm -hmm. as I started to step back from the nonstop digestion of COVID stuff, I, I started to think, what, what's really bothering me here? And one of the things that really bothered me was how much I felt like my second home, the ICU, was corrupted. And I wanted to kind of remember what I loved about it because mm -hmm. I was in such a kind of bad place. And I did that in a very weird way. I don't know why it started like this, but I started to um, make a card game about the ICU. Wow. And it was specifically the ICU before COVID. It is the ICU of 2019. There's absolutely no mention of COVID in it. And I put just hundreds of hours into this. And my wife was so supportive because she saw that when I was, my kids would go to bed and I would just start working on this. And I just made, I started by making a card for everything in the ICU that I could think of, every person, every medicine, every whatever, every procedure. And it was a very private thing for mm -hmm. maybe six, eight months or something. Wow. And I just kept building it, building it, building it. And it was like a sublimation, right? Uh -huh. Of uh -huh. taking all of this negative experience and emotion and trying to remind myself about the good stuff. Wow. So, I mean, as you're talking, you're, you know, it makes you think just the power of the mind, right? And I mean, I certainly remember, you know, during some of the tough times thinking, whatever's happening is happening. And then there's like my reaction to it, right? Which do I have control over that or not, right? Yeah. And so the power of your mind to literally recreate the ICU <laughs> that had, you know, pre-corrupted ICU, yeah. right? Like in this 
elaborate, but I mean, all that stuff's in your head, right? It's not, it's yeah, not any yeah. more elaborate than what's in your head. In right, fact, it's less right. elaborate than that, but all of the the work looking back, like, was that like a random thing or like, how, how do you explain? I mean, that's not something everyone's going to do, right? Or maybe people do different versions of it. I like, think, how do you explain I think people that? do different versions of it. For me, it was a, it was a strange kind of escapism that wasn't escapism. And I think what I could say is that initially, I tried a lot of escapism. Okay. I was reading novels. I was reading all kinds of stuff. Just had nothing to do with medicine or anything. Yeah. And it wasn't doing oh, it. It just wasn't doing it. Yeah. I needed to somehow reconcile what was really, really bothering me, which was everyone experienced their world turned upside down from COVID. Yeah. But for me, the way that it happened most was in seeing the ICU like this. And yeah. I had to reconcile that. And I had to somehow deal with that. And so I yep. kind of had to both run towards it by doing medical ICU things, but really keep it more than at arm's length by saying, no, nothing about COVID is in this. Interesting. That actually explains it, a lot of it, I think, right? So you actually tried this escapism thing that a lot of people tried and it actually worked for some people, but it wasn't fully helping you. So you kind of merged escapism with, you know, some reality stuff. Yeah. And you said poured hundreds of hours. So think about all the mental energy that, yeah. that went into yeah. that. I mean, I guess we'd call it a coping strategy. It doesn't really do it justice, but what ended up happening with the card game? Is it just oh, the thing so, sitting so, in so your exciting. closet? Or? So I, yeah, so it started as, a, like I said, a very private endeavor. And it slowly became enough of a thing that I kind of thought, I really want to share this with people because I put so much of myself into it. That was the number one reason. It's just, it wasn't just the ICU in a nuts and bolts kind of sense. It was a lot of the way I practiced medicine, the way I was taught to practice medicine, the empathy and the skill and all that and the admiration for my colleagues and, you know, accepting the seriousness of it as well. So it's hard to kind of figure out the way to make it not flippant, right? Yeah. To take things seriously, but also yeah. be fun. Yeah. And I ultimately kind of said, you know, I think that this is worth sharing with people. I want to share with people why I love this ICU so much. And I want to give them this sort of immersive experience to, to let them understand. Because if you tell if you tell people what the ICU is like, yeah. a lot of people are really turned off. Right. And I kind of wanted to share what's amazing about it. So I partnered actually with a with a full-time board game designer, Omari um, Akil, and Omari basically made it fun. I don't know how else to say it. So I brought all this ICU content and he made it into something which we've been working on it still since then. So now it's been you know, well over you know, a year and a half that we're working on this now. And um, wow. it so it has become, it's, it's so taken on a life fun. of its own. It's taken on a life of wow. its own. And my goal now with it is to share kind of my love for the ICU to get people. It's not for, it's not just for people in medicine, for people who don't know any medicine can play this. I played it with teenagers. They love it. Wow. It's to get people interested in medicine. I hope people play this and say, Hey, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could be a respiratory therapist or a doctor or a nurse or whatever. So I'm excited about it. And, and every card of over 250 cards, I've been working with Sarah Merwin, who wrote the, um, the informed patient to write these tweet length descriptions of everything in the ICU, everything from a family meeting to uh, Swan Gans catheter, you know, wow. like everything. So, you know, it's really hard to encompass all that. And I have a bunch of people helping with that language and everything, but you can pick this up and just get such a deep glimpse into what the ICU is like and play doctor. So again, the power of the mind, right? So it, it yeah. certainly worked in terms of helping you, but now it's something you're using to give back. Is it the kind of thing people literally could look? Is, do you have, is there a website now? Oh, yet? yeah, or, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, you can go to criticalcaregame.com. It'll be launched on Kickstarter in August. I love it. I play it all the time. I play it with, you know, whenever I'm meeting any of my friends, we play it and everyone loves it because it's actually fun. I couldn't make it fun. I'm not going to pretend. <laughs> I made it an ICU game. But so it's criticalcaregame.com? Yep, criticalcaregame.com. Critical so, so that was one major kind of coping mechanism or strategy. But then when we talked, you said you also, did you also look into getting yourself into therapy? Yeah, and, and I think what I realized was that it's kind of like working on this game was a life float for me when mm -hmm. I was in, I was in a world. Yeah. And my, my wife calmed the waters, but I was still drowning. The game was kind of like a life vest. Yeah. It was... It was a flotation device that kept me above water and was so powerful for that. So both of those things, my wife pulling me up, calming those waters, stopping me from actively going under, and yep. this keeping me afloat, got me through a lot of that time. But really, it was when I went to actually speak to my local community mental health center about the kind of experience of caring for patients with COVID and all that and being in that time that I it clicked finally when I realized, wow, I... I'm talking about some really traumatic experiences. And if anywhere else were saying this, I would be saying you should go and talk to someone. And why have I not? And I mean, the reason is the same as for everyone in healthcare. I think there's a lot of stigma yeah. and there's stigma within ourselves. And there's also a lot of that's really important, but I don't want to use those resources because I'm not sick enough. Right. I've, I've definitely heard that from healthcare folks, you know, let there, there are people that need it more. I don't want to take up yeah. a space in line, but how fascinating. So you, you're going out to give a talk, happens to be at a community mental health center. And somewhere in the process of that, you have an awareness of your environment. I'm in this mental health environment. And that creates a kind of awareness you wouldn't otherwise have to think, wait yeah. a minute, I'm having yeah. these things. And in other words, if you happen to give that talk at a car dealership, maybe you wouldn't have had the, you know. Maybe I would have bought and, a car. <laughs> and how, Right. And how do you, so what, what then did you do, by the way? Yeah. So it was, first of all, I kind of remember during that talk and during that time, I remember thinking in retrospect, it seems so ridiculous, but I remember thinking if I get to the point where I'm going to hurt myself, I'll call someone. Sure. That's the sign that I'm sick enough. Mm -hmm. And that's ludicrous, completely nonsensical. And I think actually a lot of people in healthcare kind of feel that. That's, that's the point where I'm someone that actually needs help at that point. Right. So I, I, that's when it kind of clicked, like, what am I doing? Right. Listen to the things coming out of my mouth. And so I actually reached out to the center and I, cause I, I mean, it's embarrassing, but I didn't even know where to go, where to seek help or anything. Very um, I know that there's a mental health crisis in this country. And I, I also know as COVID taught me, you know, and, and all of us, how much privilege plays into everything that, yep. you know, because I was able to access the, you know, care, I got care very quickly. Uh, so I reached out to the community mental health center and they set me up with someone so right away. So that's a double thing. So it, it kind of created awareness for you, but then also it became a pathway. When yeah. you when you reached out to them, how did that go, by the way? I felt very clumsy and kind of, I kind of said, hey, I don't know how to go about this, but I mm -hmm. think I, I would like to talk to someone. I don't know how to start. Mm -hmm. And they took the entire, you know, the whole experience of therapy is the lifting of burden off of me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's why I think it's so amazing. And it started in that moment when they said, we'll figure it out. We'll take care of it. Just tell us when you're available. We'll set you up for a Zoom. And the very first 
couple of calls I had with my therapist I wasn't even talking about COVID for a while. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it just was unbelievable how much I didn't realize that shame and guilt were driving so much of my everyday actions and thoughts. Wow. And actually, for you to say and for us to hear in the mental health system that mental health care can and should be about lifting a burden. You know, all of the stuff you're talking about, the guilt and shame. And for us, as we build better and better systems, because we do need to build better systems to listen to to that experience. I mean, that, you know, that's a pretty typical experience for somebody who's coming in with a broken bone or what, you know, to to lift the burden of that pain. First, we relieve the pain. Exactly. So, so that was another thing that, that you did and, and was helpful in addition to lifting the burden. What else would you, you know, as somebody that's not coming up through mental health training and how else would you describe what, what does therapy actually do? You know? I, yeah, sure. I, I would start by saying that as many people as I'm fortunate to have in my life who love me and who are amazing, and I'm so privileged to have them in my life, there is only one person in my life who can truly, I truly feel has no judgment when I speak to him and as my therapist. It's just different. I don't know how to say it. And people, I tell that to people and they're, they're kind of like, oh no, I know, but I've got great friends or I've got this person or that. Every relationship you have is a two-way street and there's a lot that's there and it's all amazing, but it's not the same as someone who can totally listen to you without judgment. That's an experience I never had before. I mean, that is so helpful. I mean, first of all, it's helpful to me. And I, I, you know, I've been doing this a while. I've probably seen over 10,000 patients, but, you know, oh and somebody else, you didn't say it that way. They said something about this is the only person that's not invested in mm-hmm. the outcome or something like that. But you're talking about a pure no judgment zone because people don't know what is, what is therapy? How's that going to be different yeah. and how important that is? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just so interesting because in the starting, there were so many times where it's a very different relationship because all the cues I would kind of give as let's not talk about that. And everyone would kind of uh, understand that that doesn't work. Right. So there's, you know, it's, it is going into uncomfortable spaces and, and asking why they're uncomfortable. It's just amazing how much self understanding I get from it. It's not them giving me advice. Yeah. I, I don't get advice. Yeah. I think that's the biggest misconception that that's I had. Right. I'm not going there to get advice. Yeah. I'm going there for someone to put this mirror up in front of me that yeah. no one else has ever put in front of me. And for me to really learn about myself from myself, it's so authentic. Wow. That is so helpful. You know, and because I think people have a general sense of oh, therapy, you talk about things that are diff- difficult, right? But this yeah. this is a much more specific set of things you're saying about it, the no judgment, the holding up a mirror, or, you know, and learning about yourself from yourself. We're just about to finish up and I, a couple of things I want to say, and then let me ask you if you yeah. have any thoughts we didn't get to. But, you know, the first one of the, some of the things that stand out to me, this this notion of the, you know, COVID virus, not just as a physical virus, but as a kind of structural or social or systemic virus that disrupts and corrupts the systems. And you just Mm -hmm. describe that so eloquently. The the card game, I don't know, you wouldn't have planned it, you know, to be a a brilliant, brilliant solution, but it sort of evolved as a starting with some escapism, but then, you know, wasn't working. So brought in reality, but really all this, the power of your mind to create this life vest. I mean, what a perfect metaphor. If if it doesn't work out for ICU, I hope you decide to 
come into psychiatry or mental health because <laughs> those like that's just such an incredible metaphor that 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 thing buoyed you and pulled you up, you know, as did your relationships and your wife and these are flotation devices, but they still don't really necessarily do the work in the way that the therapy did. So all of therapy got me out of the water. Right. Right. And as I turn it back to you for just last words, one thing I do want to, I really do encourage people to look at that website. And also you're, you're very active on social media, Lakshman, and maybe we can just have you, you know, say what, how, to, how people can search for you on, on social media. But as we're finishing up, any, any uh, final thoughts? I, you know, I just, I really hope that I, I would have gotten so much more out of the past few years of my life in medical training, going through all the stress that I did mm-hmm. with young kids and all of this stuff, if I'd been in therapy the whole time. It just would have made my life better. And I, I wish I wish I could have done it earlier. I'm glad I'm doing it now. I wish many, many more of my colleagues in medicine would would just just do it. You know, you don't need to have a big problem. I really think all of us, especially after this past year, but even before it, everyone benefits from it. It will it's not there to fix a broken person as much as it'll make you whole. It'll make you stronger. It'll make give you authentic self-confidence. It's just so powerful. And it's so powerful for you to say that as a, first of all, as a human being, as an American, you know, which, which there's a lot of stigma, as a man, uh, lots of stigma, and as somebody in healthcare and as a doctor, like all of those things, each one of those things for you to say that has a ton of power. So again, the website for the game is? Criticalcaregame.com. So you can just Google Critical Care Game and, and how to find you on social media. It's my, my handle on social media is L-A-X-S-W-A-M-Y, Lakswamy. L-A-S or X? X, L-A-X. Got it. So thank you so much. I mean, what an what a incredible uh, conversation to have and to add to the podcast. Really unique, really powerful. And so thank you also for all you're doing and have done to take care of people and learn about this virus on behalf of the rest of us. And, and we wish you the best. Thanks so much, John. I really appreciate it. Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic. With Dr. John Santo Pietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editors, Sinead Doyle and Vlad Radu. Film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, Please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors, 
and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255, or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512 7883.